Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our World Risk Register Threat Monitoring Service. These podcasts are released on a weekly basis, covering timely and relevant topics. In these discussions, we hope to shed light on evolving scenarios and provide actionable predictions and implications. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Hello and welcome. In this session, we're going to be talking about the situation in Ukraine, notably following the assassination of separatist leader Alexander Zakharchenko. And uh, to join me and no doubt correct my pronunciation, I'm delighted to be joined by our lead uh, Eurasia analyst, Ed Johnson. So, Ed, what is what happened? Well, uh, Alexander Zakharchenko, who uh, has led the Donetsk People's Republic or uh, DNR, since the, the end of the summer of 2014, uh, was in a, in a cafe called, ironically enough, a separatist cafe uh, in central Donetsk uh, when an explosion occurred, killing him and one of his bodyguards, as well as seriously injuring the uh, Minister of Finance of, of the Donetsk People's Republic, Alexander Timofeyev, or Tashkent, as is normally here, who is a very close associate of Zaharchenko. Immediately after this, the, uh, the city was pretty much shut down, and then over the weekend there was a, a mass outpouring of, well, largely genuine, but somewhat, some would argue staged grief in Donetsk, uh, you know, a rumored 100,000 people attending, with uh, both sides, the Ukrainians, the Russians, uh, and the separatists accusing, um, accusing each other of carrying out the attack. Uh, Russia denounced uh, Kiev's actions. Kiev uh, su- suggested it was the, the separatists fighting amongst themselves. And at the moment, whilst although several arrests were made within, within the DNR, the actual blame for it that remains sort of largely unknown. Mm-hmm. Okay, and how significant is this? I mean, personally, I think this is this is by far and away the most significant development in the the context of the Ukraine conflict since the since 2015's battle for Devaltseva. This is you know it's a very senior figure, the, the the prime minister of the of the People's Republic, uh, and a sort of iconic figure. And perhaps that sort of leads us on to why this might have happened. Because yeah, what's what's the context here? What, what's this all about? I think we, we largely have to view the, context, the changes in these republics as parallel to the sort of formal structures, uh, peace process and structure, these sorts of structures, and how they progress and how they develop. Uh, this began perhaps last year in November with the removal of Igor Plotnitsky as head of the um, Luhansk People's Republic. And you know, the, the, move, the assassination of Zaharchenko is much more significant, and principally in, the, in its uh, more violent nature. But also in, in sort of what Donetsk represents in itself, I you know, would believe that this is is a preparation for a renewed effort to renegotiate or to reintegrate as well the the republics into Ukraine, a process that will be governed and run by Moscow. Uh, Zaharchenko represented you know, sort of the hardcore of the separatist movements. A guy from Donetsk fought in in several of the key battles in Debaltseva, Ilovaisk, and at Donetsk Airport as well. And his his treatment of Ukrainian prisoners was pretty poor, and, and by all accounts was a sort of very brusque and straight up kind of guy. And the, his removal, whilst we sort of anticipated it to come perhaps closer to the Ukrainian elections, which are going to be taking place in, in March of next year, uh, definitely signals a sort of an attempt perhaps by Russia to sort of clean up the image of the, of the, of the DNR and the LNR uh, and enable it to effectively uh, position it in their people who will be more amenable to Kiev in terms of negotiation. Uh, likely candidates to succeed him at the moment are Denis Pushilin, who is the head of the sort of uh, People's Council of the of the DNR, and Igor Khodorkovsky, I believe his name is, 
who was a former Ukrainian SBU agent, a Secret Service agent, but now works, uh, was now is on the side of the separatists. The current sort of acting head is a man called, uh, I forget his first name, but Trapeznikov is, is his last name. And he's largely seen as a sort of uh, placeholder and doesn't have the sort of credibility to carry out negotiations with Kiev. Now, why would Moscow want to do this is, is certainly uh, is a good question. Obviously, the, from my perspective, the primary angle is, is cost. To, re, to reconstruct and to sort of redevelop these, uh, these regions that have been torn by four years of war now is, is you know, very expensive. The estimates I've heard are 30 to $40 billion, probably more. You know, Moscow doesn't have that kind of spare change lying around. So you know, clearly, they, would, they want to resolve this by reintegrating these regions back into Ukraine, which would also have the added benefits of perhaps slowing down Kiev's pivot towards the west its reorientation away from moscow now how would that work obviously with moscow, what moscow would like to happen isn't always possible given constraints in kiev which is why the elections next year are so important in, in ukraine you'll have the presidential elections in march and then in october we'll have uh, parliamentary elections october 2019 then. 2019 yeah, yes yeah. Mm. and there's definitely a sort of growing consensus a growing understanding that Mo- the moscow will seek to support in any way it can and i think this this has to be very delicately approached because you know any suggestion of of russian influence or russian support is perhaps more likely to damage a candidate in ukraine these days rather than uh, kind of any help them along the way moscow would really like to see petro poroshenko not be re-elected i think that's that's pretty much straightforward why, you know. why is that well poroshenko is you know he's been running the country since 2014 he's overseen the sort of uh, you know the resistance of the Ukrainian army and then you know, his rhetoric towards Moscow is, is absolute and defiant. And you know, there is a, an understanding that he, he has a position and isn't, isn't perhaps willing to give. He's built his sort of image, his, the culture around him in the political environment is very much one based on understanding the conflict with Russian aggression um, and is, isn't very amenable to greater compromise, perhaps. Yeah. So, and, you know, you talked about the Kremlin's game plan for uh, Ukraine and for the conflict being to reintegrate to an extent the separatist republics into Ukraine. How might that work? You know, can you expand on Kremlin's game plan and, and why they would want to do that? Sure. Uh, other than the uh, the cost, of course. Well, of you, course. I mean, you, you know, perhaps even that's the cost is sort of um, secondary to the the idea that you can stop uh, Ukrainian integration in, to the, towards the West, and that would largely be carried out by effectively uh, driving through the, the Minsk II peace agreements, which were signed after the, the Battle of the Baltica in 2015. And these em- envisage the, the two republics being reintegrated into Ukraine as autonomous republics within, within this current structure. This would le- then allow the, the current sort of uh, separatist authorities to become Ukrainian authorities within the context of Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts, the regions. Now, this would be accompanied with constitutional changes in Ukraine that would empower the 26 regions within the country uh, with greater greater autonomy overall, thus weakening the central government quite significantly. There's a suggestion that this would also include re- veto rights over foreign policy or, or you know, kind of having to have a sort of consensus on foreign policy directions, which would obviously afford Moscow significant um, influence. So that's sort of why these elections, particularly the presidential elections um, and also the parliamentary elections, are important in terms of Moscow being able to secure the victory of a candidate who might be more willing to discuss, willing to negotiate with directly with the separatist republics. So that's, again, uh, perhaps another reason why we see the, the, these sort of old guard separatists being you know, either, um, in the case of Igor Plotnitsky, who is the head of the Luhansk region, Republic, being deposed in a, in a bloodless coup, and then obviously Zaharchenko being killed in a very spectacular, bloody way, removing these people who are stained by the four years of war, 
perhaps having people who are more sophisticated and less sort of associated with violence being put in a position more more sort of uh, marketable as it were yeah um, who, who could enable the move towards a federalized ukraine from russia's point of view so how does how does that you know taking it back to the assassination of zahachenko who do we who do we think did that well, the the the, uh, the the first sort of reaction from the, the separatist side of things, and we start with them, was that they arrested a, an unknown number of individuals very close to the scene who uh, supposedly were Ukrainian saboteurs affiliated with the security services of Ukraine or SBU. And this is their sort of line. Moscow picked up on this very quickly with uh, the, the spokeswoman for Russia's foreign minister, Maria Zahachenko, as well, stating that this is a, an act of aggression from Kiev and, and sort of very much destabilizing um, the, the, the current situation and, and prevent, presenting the Ukrainians as, as provocateurs in this, in this aspect. That was echoed by Sergei Lavrov, the, the foreign minister himself, who said he dismissed the prospect of, of further talks through the, the Normandy format, um, given Ukraine's actions. Kiev, conversely, understandably, uh, denies any involvement in this, in, in this incident uh, and is portraying it as a sort of conflict between the separatists themselves. Um, and this you know, isn't an isolated event. There has been um, a slew of, um, of assassinations or attempted assassinations. I mean, Zahachenko himself was the subject of a, a failed car bombing in the summer of 2014. So, you know, there, this follows the, the primary examples would be the, the uh, sort of guerrilla fighters, they were self-styled, um, of Mikhail Tostik or Givi, as well as Arsen Pavlov, uh, nom de guerre Motorola, who were very prominent uh, in the early stages of, of, the, of the conflict. And were used as sort of propaganda in, in, in separatist propaganda. Uh, their assassinations were, were quite destabilizing, but were less um, sort of dramatic or impactful, perhaps, as, as uh, the assassination of Zaharchenko. So certainly we can talk about these assassinations in the context of confrontation and conflict between the separatist groups. So they're not necessarily homogenous with you know, these groups competing over the resources of the Donbass, as well as different Russian interests getting involved. Um, there's a, you know, a lot of conflict in, in this area in the sense that you know, Russia wants to pursue things in, uh, diplomatically on one level. Uh, the, the local guys are, are, have taken control of the key industries and these sorts of things, so, uh, which provide a, an enormous financial benefit and reward. And that's a, one possible motivation behind this, that uh, Zaharchenko and uh, Timofeyev, the, the, the Minister of Finance, uh, were targeted by individuals within the DNR who uh, resented his style of leadership and perhaps, whereas previously uh, it would have not have been feasible or the done thing to, um, to have killed him, the one probable outcome here is that rather than instigating it themselves, the Russians simply did nothing to stop it happening. It sort of resolved itself with internally, uh, and this is you know, Russia's approach to it. Its management style is is one of selective application of force and influence, and I think we're going to exp- we're going to see that grow and grow and grow. Their sorry, their influence grow and grow and grow after uh, Zaharchenko's death, and and that Russia will become much more involved in the day to day running of, of of the republic. Mm. So that leads us on rather neatly to uh, looking at what's going to happen next. Um, obviously, we've got a few focal points coming up with the presidential elections in. March 2019 and the parliamentary elections in October 2019. But at a more of a strategic level, what are your main predictions and implications for the future of the conflict? Well, I think on, on a day-to-day basis, you're going to see a continuation of violence, intermittent, uh, escalating and de-escalating as, as sort of as is necessary, as mandated by, by Moscow. Uh, certainly both sides will engage in, in violating the ceasefires, uh, both Ukrainians and the separatists, that is. There's a, in place at the moment, there's a sort of back-to-school uh, ceasefire. I wouldn't be surprised, I would be surprised if that lasts 
endures over the long term or even medium term. I think as the Ukrainian presidential elections hove interview, we will see sort of, again, the use of the conflict to destabilize and try and undermine Poroshenko. Um, however, you know, both sides are pretty entrenched there and the, the situation is unlikely, I think, to return to sort of the all-out a large-scale kinetic warfare that we saw in, in late 2000, in early 2015, late 2014. In regards to Ukraine and how it is, it's looking moving forward to the, the elections domestically, I think, you know, at a, at a time of always a heightened instability and growing polarization within society uh, between the sort of populists, the reformers, and the nationalist groupings or veterans groupings, uh, which we've we've talked about before, uh, you know, in in Ukraine as a very destabilizing force. You know, Russia has minimal influence in Ukraine in, in terms of what it used to have before 2014. So I don't think there is much hope of kind of you know, in, in imposing that similar kind of rhetoric and, and receiving the same sort of results. But what I think they will do is is seek to exploit and drive instability through the kind of divisions, which naturally there that exists between the conflict between Timoshenko and Poroshenko. Timoshenko is now backed by several oligarchs, including Igor Holomoysky, who famously fell out with uh, with Poroshenko twice. Uh, he uh, fired him as governor of Dnipropetrovsk region and then uh, took his bank away from him, which was Ukraine's largest bank. So he's now backing Timoshenko uh, and has just acquired another media outlet. So there's going to be, I think, kind of all this sort of back-channel communication and, and this sort of momentum to unseat Poroshenko will grow and grow and grow. And from, from the other side, you mentioned that Poroshenko's camp will say anything that is, that is not Poroshenko uh, for the elections is, will be perceived uh, or will be posited as being pro-Russian. So effectively, Poroshenko's line is, if you're not voting for me, you're, you're pro-Kremlin. I think, it, yeah, it, it, more or less along those lines. I mean, he, he's very much pitching himself as, I think the tagline he's got going is the army faith and Europe or something along those lines. You know, he's, he's, he's really pushed uh, this year on the Independence Day. The theme was the new army. Um, and he's pushed a sort of a redevelopment and a sort of uh, Ukrainianization, de-Sovietization, let's call it, of the Ukrainian army. Uh, obviously, you know, they've secured an association agreement with Europe and visa-free travel, which is hugely popular. Uh, and then right at the moment, he's really pushing very hard to get the Ukrainian Orthodox Church to become autocephalous from Moscow Patriarch, which would again represent quite a significant development. So this is the angle he's running on. Timoshenko is pushing more of a sort of new course for the country, which is a bit ironic given her sort of long-standing uh, participation in Ukrainian politics. And I think that's, it we won't be overtly Russian, it will be sort of anti-Poroshenko and anti the way that he's run things, you know, the um, increase, IMF mandated increases in, in gas tariffs or domestic prices and all these sorts of things will be brought up and used to criticize him. His failure to tackle corruption in certain areas will, will be highlighted. And it will just, so, you know, it, that's the sort of angle that she'll come from. And I think Poroshenko will push back and will criticize her for her lack of engagement, really, with the Donbass conflict. She's never very, doesn't really speak about it in public, hasn't really visited the front line. Uh, she seems quite quite removed from it. So I think, yeah, he certainly will try and spin her as more of the candidate that would suit the Kremlin. And whereas he is the sort of guarantor of Ukrainian statehood and you know, not going to give in, give in anything to the Kremlin. Yeah. So looking at implications during this time of instability around the, uh, the parliamentary and the presidential elections in October and March, respectively, I guess what we've seen in the past is a huge hike in cyber activity around that. Do, do you foresee uh, a similar rise in activity next year? 
Absolutely. I mean, when you, Ukraine has long been a, a testing ground for, for Russian cyber, nefarious cyber activity, both by state-affiliated and state actors and also Russian-based, even Ukrainian-based um, you know, for-profit actors. And I, I would definitely agree with you that we will, will anticipate more of this kind of cyber activity targeting state institutions, be they banks, the Ministry of Defense, um, as well as incidences of commercial um, entities being targeted with, you know, there was a, an attack on a, a tax system that was used, a tax um, sort of formulation system that was used by a large number of Ukrainian businesses that paralyzed national chains of supermarkets. Uh, the Kiev metro was stopped stop running, you know, on a, on a sort of bigger scale than that. Even we've seen uh, infrastructure attacks against electricity grids in eastern Ukraine, uh, in western Ukraine, sorry, uh, in 2015, which left about 300,000 people without power in the middle of winter for about two or three days. So these are the sorts of styles of things that we're going to see more and more of. Largely plausible deniability behind them, a varying scale, but maximum kind of just churn of the instability and churn of undermining the state, making Poroshenko look weak. Mm. That's that anything that goes along that kind of narrative that will damage his image in, in the eyes of, of, of Ukrainians is, is likely, we're likely to see that. I, mm. I'm... I'm not sure of how the old school kind of um, cleavage issues that were used in the previous elections, how um, effective they will be, given the loss of Crimea and, and, and the areas of the Donbass that are occupied as voting blocks. You know, they can't count, can't count on those people anymore. So it'll have to be a sort of almost counter-narrative to say that you know, Tim uh, Poroshenko isn't doing a good enough job of protecting Ukraine. He's, he's weak and he's not Ukrainian enough. And, and if, if that was the case and they were able to sort of get knock him out of the second round, which is, is likely that uh, Timoshenko will advance to and had a weaker candidate in there, that would definitely be a, a, a benefit to them. Yeah, and in terms of the cyber aspect, you mentioned plausible deni deniability there. And I think quite a common way that that's achieved is by harnessing or leveraging third parties uh, in order to uh, stage these kind of uh, cyber uh, attacks. And that, of course, can um, impact clients in lots of different ways. I guess also... The other thing to mention is that we you, you mentioned Ukraine as a testing ground for cyber activity. We saw WannaCry and various other things um, almost sort of begin in Ukraine, and those of course spread throughout Europe and and more globally. So the uh, shockwaves from developments in Ukraine really can be felt throughout the region, particularly on a on a cyber in a cyber sense. So if we're looking at this as a period of elevated tensions between perhaps Russia and NATO and the US and Europe where does you know where do we where do we think that that might see things at the at the sort of global level go in terms of relations between Moscow and uh, and European uh, capitals and, and Washington well in in the senate at the moment I think even before the summer recess in the US senate there was um, a bill put forward by a bipartisan group of senators um, in the same week that the uh, 8th of August sanctions expansion was, was signed and came into effect, which was uh, Im implemented as a result of the Novichok incident in, in Salisbury in March. Now, this, the, the bill in the Senate is, is pretty spectacular in its range uh, in the sense that it will target Russian financial institutions, in particular you know, with, with quite significant ramifications, including possible limits on the use of dollar in, in bank transfers and depriving uh, Russia's already kind of very unstable banking sector of you know that the, the, that ability which again would be a huge exogenous shock to that uh, that sector 
with Russia having bailed out two of its largest banks last year, I think you know that the the, the effect of that would be felt pretty pretty severely. In addition, the the bill uh, marks out restrictions on energy projects and energy infrastructure and Russia's ability to sort of buy related goods and products. However, I think the chances of the bill in its entirety and current form passing through both the Senate, the House, and then being signed off by President Trump uh, is quite unlikely. That said, some bill is likely to be forthcoming. Uh, and the exact extent of that, we don't know. As to when they might come into force is is, is up for grabs. You know, domestic considerations in the US there have to be understood in, in terms of how that you know, how, how likely that is to, to come in, certainly before the midterm elections. But any, any, any bill like that would certainly elicit countersanctions from Russia, a lot more hostility um, and, and the sort of rhetoric that we've seen recently. Brilliant. Ed, thank you very much for all of your insight there. Quite a turbulent time ahead, uh, so it seems, for Ukraine, the region and indeed for the world. If any of our conversation here has triggered further questions, please do not hesitate to get in touch. Thank you. Thank you for listening, and we hope you have found this podcast useful. If you would like to learn more about our services, or if you have any questions or feedback, please get in touch at info at